Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Hear that? It's the call of the crave. And when the crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 bacon bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. The following podcast contains barnyard language and some adult content. So, maybe listen on headphones if you're at work or around small children. Now, here's the show. Hey, Jolenta. Yes, Kristen. You know who I've been dying to have on for a buy-the-book bonus episode? Uh, Meghan Markle, Dolly Parton, well, Oprah. Yes, all, all of those people I would, uh-huh. of course, love to have on the show. Oprah, call us up. But I actually had someone else in mind. Um, Can you give me a hint? Well, she's smarter than anyone I know. Mm -hmm. She's hilarious. And she always has two perfect words to describe any situation. That is Professor Trish Travis, isn't it? Yes, it is. You know it is. And guess what? Today we're in luck. Because I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Professor Trish Travis. And this is By the Book, Professor Travis Tells All. Your life is going down the drain. You're in so much pain. You need some help. Ooh, self-help. By the book, 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 by the book. That's right. It is time for a By the Book bonus episode. That's our Between Seasons treat for your ears. And today... It's all about Professor Trish Travis. Professor Travis is a 20th century U.S. cultural and literary historian with a focus on gender and popular culture. Her subspecialties are the history of medicine with a focus on therapy, addiction and recovery, and self-help. All season long, Professor Travis has been putting the books we've lived by into historical context. And before we get to Professor Travis, quick reminder, if bonus episodes every other week are not enough for you, 
check out our other podcast, We Love You and So Can You. In each episode, we help a guest tackle a predicament in their life and hopefully help them feel a little more love for themselves along the way. It's basically a makeover show in podcast form for your heart. Yes. All right. Now that our announcements are out of the way, shall we welcome Professor Travis? Professor Travis! Yay! I'm excited to be here to close things out. Oh, my gosh. We're so excited to have you here to wrap up this season. We have so many questions out there, so many comments. Yeah. I'm so excited. Our first question comes from Ramya. Sorry if I butchered your name. It's a beautiful spelling. Ramya says, listening to Professor Travis weigh in has been delightful, and I am definitely part of the Professor Travis fan club now. Maybe we need t-shirts? I would love to hear about how she found herself studying these topics. Okay, number one, I'm all for t-shirts. Uh, good, so we good. can get going on that right away. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is an odd field of study, and I came to it in a better roundabout way. Uh, while I was in graduate school studying American literature and history, I had a bunch of friends and family who were active, getting active in the 12-step recovery community. To support them, I started going to meetings, and then I started going to Al-Anon, the 12-step program for family and friends of alcoholics, uh, and I was active in that group for a number of years. I found that really personally useful and culturally really rich and very strange compared Mm. to the very progressive political and intellectual circles that I traveled in during my J job as a graduate student. Yeah. Um, so after uh, after living that life for a few years, I decided I wanted to know more about it. But I found that there really wasn't that much historical research done on the 12-step movement, despite the fact that it's a massive uh, social phenomenon of the 20th century. And since there wasn't a lot of research done about it, I just decided to write a whole book about it, which is not (laughs) something I would recommend to everyone out there. That was 10 years of my life I won't get back. Uh, So I wrote a book about the history of 12-step recovery, and in thinking about it and trying to tell a convincing and compelling story, one that is as rich as that subject deserves, I ended up learning a lot about a wide range of self-help movements from the 19th century all the way through the 20th century, including many of the strands of self-help that have really fed into the books in this program. So the New Thought Movement, which is sort of the origins of the culture of abundance and Mm. the manifesting positive change in your life way of thinking, the power of positive thinking, which is a more secular version of New Thought religion. And then I translated those ideas into a movement of uh, consciousness raising and self-actualization in the 1960s and 70s. And I had a full slate of understanding about a wide range of hugely popular traditions that hardly anyone in the American Academy takes really seriously as cultural phenomenon. So that's how I got interested in it. Love it. Love it. And it is a really important area of study. If you think about Mm -hmm. what are the best-selling books in America. Absolutely. What are people reading? And we are what we read, right? Yeah. And just the 12-step program is so, like, culturally influential. It's bizarre that there hasn't been that much scholarship like, looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It is known to pretty much everyone in the United States as a thing, 
but very few people, including clinicians and criminal justice professionals who recommend it to their clients, actually know very much about the way AA and its offshoots work. They know very little about the history of those groups, about the differences among the regional differences and the meeting-to-meeting differences, the politics and sort of organization of those groups. And so it is a strange thing that it is such a huge part of late 20th century American culture and so completely not fully understood by uh, by the people who live through it. Totally. Well, Professor Travis, we imagine in all of your studies and teaching that you've probably read a lot of self-help books and a number of listeners, including Lori, want to know, do you have any favorite self-help books? Do you actually like self-help books? That's a great question. Obviously, I like self-help books enough to sort of dedicate my intellectual life to thinking about them, but it means that I don't really read them in the same way, probably as many of your listeners. There have been books that have been really helpful and illuminating to me at different points in my life. The Al-Anon Day Reader, Courage to Change, is, I think, a great inspirational and motivating book to bring change into different areas of your life. I've used that um, for many years at different times in my life. And another book that comes out of 12-step recovery but is not really reducible to it, which I share with all of my graduate students and my junior colleagues and which really made a huge change in my life was Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, Instructions Mm, for Writing and Life. Yes. That is a fantastic... I don't know that book. ...gentle funny, informative, and really rigorous book for rethinking yourself as a person and as a writer, which in my job is really important. Other than that, when I'm looking to read self-help titles, I tend to be more sort of like on a targeted strike for dealing with a particular (laughs) problem. So I've read books about how to talk to a narcissist, how to talk to a person Mm. with borderline personality disorder. The exception to that would be books on dealing with tween girls because I have a tween daughter. So I've been reading a lot of books that are explanatory about developmental psychology, but also give mothers tips for how to shut the fuck up and get out of the way. (laughs) Yeah. That's important stuff. So I don't read self-help in the same way that others do. The most recent book that I've read that has how-to in the title, though, is Mm -hmm. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, and I'd give that a shout-out to anybody. Okay, so Professor Travis, for those listeners like myself and Kristen who want to maybe think, about self-help the way you do and learn from you more. Nellie asked, does Professor Travis ever teach online classes? I just love her perspective on history. She's so engaging, and I would love to learn more from her. Nellie, hard agree. Thanks, Nellie. I appreciate that. Uh, I do not presently teach online classes, but if you want to know more about the way I think, you can buy my books. Uh, They are readily available from Amazon.com or from the University of North Carolina or the University of Chicago Press. Can you tell us some of the titles? Yeah. Sure. My first book on the history of 12-step culture is called The Language of the Heart, A Cultural History of Alcoholics Anonymous from AA to Oprah. And it's so long of a title that I don't even put it all in my signature line. That came out (laughs) in 2009. 
Uh, and then in 2016, uh, with a friend of mine, Tim Aubrey, I edited a collection called Rethinking Therapeutic Culture, which is a collection mm. of essays where we asked a bunch of different academics to just sort of do a meditation on one word that they felt was key to therapeutic or self-help culture in the U.S. today. So you get essays on things like pain, trauma, yoga, narcissism, uh, and a variety of topics like that. That's more of an easy-to-pick-up-and-put-down sort nice. of weekend book. Those sound great. Yeah. We'll have to check those out, add those to our library. Adding that to my queue. <laughs> All right, our next question is from Nora. Is that our producer, Nora? Yes, it is our producer. <laughs> Nora wants to know, Professor Travis, what do your students think about you being on a podcast? Do they listen? Well, you know, I'm not even sure that many of my po students know that I'm on a podcast. You don't talk about it every day? <laughs> I don't talk about it every day. Weird. I teach a 50-minute class period this semester, and that is such an incredibly short time yeah. that I'm finding... I'm finding it hard even to fit in my usual outrageous stories and rude comments about my daughter and my boyfriend, uh, who <laughs> serve important roles in my class as teaching tools. So I haven't mentioned uh, the podcast to them. I've mentioned it to colleagues and to some of my graduate students, and they all seem excited about it, but I don't think anybody's really listened to it. <laughs> that you know of. Wow. Well, there's that. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, our next question is from Corinne, who says, can Professor Travis recommend any books for further reading, specifically any about the history of self-help as a genre or cultural phenomenon? Sure. There, while I did say a second ago that nobody but me researches this, that's a little bit of an overstatement. Um, three books that I've used um, while preparing for the uh, epilogues in this season um, are readily available and are, are really good. One is an old book, Stephen Starker's Oracle at the Supermarket, An American Preoccupation with Self-Help. It was published in 2002. It's a very straightforward sort of historical take. It does work that a lot of your readers would be interested in and find in stating exactly how many copies were sold of certain titles, when there was a second edition printed, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes through the decades, I think up through the 80s. So that's a really good, straightforward one. More political and polemical is Mickey McGee's Self-Help Incorporated, Makeover mm, Culture yes, in American yes. Life. That's one that talks a little bit more about the shift into the new economy in the 90s and 2000s and the way that that's caused sort of our standard ideas of what a good person is to be deeply pressurized and start to change and what that means for the self-help industry. And then finally, a book I've recommended in a couple of comment threads on the Facebook page uh, is Barbara Ehrenreich's Bright Sided, How Positive yeah, Thinking yeah. is Undermining America. I think that Ehrenreich is an inspiration to me in the way that she is able to bring Same. a really rigorous sort of analysis of the political economy that underpins more airy, soft exhortations to be a certain kind of person. You're being told to be that kind of person for a reason, and it's because mm. that kind of person can serve this economy better, and she never lets sight of that, and I think it's really, really useful information in this day and age. Yeah, well, we'll, of course, add all of those books to the ones you already suggested that you wrote. So yeah. everybody out there listening, we'll, we'll make sure to put those in our notes also so people yeah. know, you know, these are the books you should look into if you have more interest in self-help. We're going to take a quick break, though, and when we come back, 
We've got some questions from listeners that dig more deeply into the history of self-help. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. All right, we are back with the one and only Professor Trish Travis, our resident self-help historian and godmother. And uh, (laughs) we've got a bunch of questions about self-help history. Uh, Joni says, Professor Travis, how do you feel about the fact that Kristen Angelenta chose to live by original rather than updated versions of the books? I know that many of the books this season have been updated since their initial release, and I personally would have preferred that they live by the updated versions, as I don't think it's especially fair to judge old texts by today's standards. Well, I agree that it's not particularly fair to judge old texts by today's standards, but I actually think that that's what history is, and so Mm. I'm in favor of it. Um, Yes. I think that I like the way that Um, These books caused people to reflect on the gap between past and present. That's something that, as a historian, I do and I teach every day, and I think more Americans should spend their time doing that. So any history basically is okay with me. When you rub up against the past and feel uncomfortable um, about the gap between it and you, that's a good thing. It should be productive of critical thought. I think there's also a temptation sort of in American culture to just assume that the moment we're at right now is the right moment. And everything that led up to this moment was kind of a dress rehearsal for now or a series of mistakes leading up to our current correct state of affairs. And I think that's a real mistake. The authors in the 30s and 40s wrote in that moment with a great deal of confidence that they were in the right, that they were undoing decades Mm -hmm. and generations of wrongheaded thinking about all kinds of things, and that their ideas were true and an improvement over the past. Now here we are in the 2020s, 
thinking that we're decades removed from Dale Carnegie and Harry Emerson Fosdick. Oh, what fools they were. No, we've got it right. Well, bad news, 100 years from now, Kristen and Jolenta's grandchildren will be doing whatever the 21st century version of a podcast is, and they'll be talking about how wrong we were on this show. No. So, (laughs) (laughs) So I think the way in which the old-fashionedness of some of these texts prompts us to think about the long view of history and the constantly evolving state of our understanding of the world, I think that's a feature, not a bug. Good call. And we're glad that you feel that way because when Jolent and I set out to do this season, the reason we chose first editions is because we wanted to include the original intention, not a glossed over version of what prior intents were or what prior periods in history were. We wanted to really capture this is what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and for authors that had passed, I also just want to make sure we're reading like the words they wrote. You yes, know? yes. Well, and I think what's great is that you can actually both see what was specific and different in the early decade and what's consistent with the way we think today. I mean, sure, there were some references to sexuality, to class position, to women's roles in all of these books that are not really in step with the way we think now. But that didn't stop, I think, any single book you read from having some relevance for us today. Am I right? Totally. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you just brought up sexuality because We got this anonymous letter that I thought was really interesting. The listener wrote, A number of self-help books covered this season looked harshly on homosexuality, but I wanted to point out that one of them, on being a real person, was fairly progressive for its time within the evangelical church, despite being unquestionably homophobic by today's standards. The idea presented in the book that being gay is a failing that you can redirect into noble desires is significantly more compassionate and more open-minded than the alternative, which is that you're a deviant monster who chooses to be bad and is incapable of anything but evil. Also, the fact that the book even mentioned gayness at all was something that slowly helped normalize it and made us seem more Mm. human. Professor Travis, do you agree? I totally agree. I think this is one of the things that's most difficult in dealing with my students these days is that they believe that where we're at now is the only thing that's tolerable, except where we're going to be after they complete mm-hmm. the revolution in a couple of weeks. Oh, no. um, One of her students. <laughs> and that these earlier statements, preferences, opinions, evocations of difference um, should be should exist only to be pointed out as errors and as impediments on the road to the current perfection that we're uh, that we're living in. I think that your reader mail is totally on point in saying that we need to understand, number one, that all progress is incremental, including the progress that we are or hope to be making right now, and that when we see the evidence of progress in past generations, we can take heart that we're part of a long struggle that has been going on successfully for a long time, which bodes well for us in the future, even if day to day we feel like we aren't making much progress. We mm-hmm. can see the shifts that have happened and track them over time. And that can give us in our activist practice, personal or community activist practice, a way to gauge what kind of success we can live with. Because I think one of the things that's difficult about 
the activist moment that we're living in today is this sense that we can't stop until everything is fixed. And mm -hmm. that is not a sustainable way to live. And we need to look to the past to the pace at which change has happened, not because we're satisfied with a slow pace of change, but because if we want to live as change agents, we need models of how people have done it in the past under harsh conditions mm, so right. that we can understand what we're capable of and forgive ourselves for not being able to accomplish more. Wow. Whoa. That is such a loving perspective on things. Yeah. Oh. Love it. Okay. So I guess jumping off of sexual orientation and how that's touched on in the books, let's get to this question from Louise who says, and this is a two-parter, why has self-help historically been such a white genre? Also, why is it ignored working class people? And how has that changed in the post-Oprah era? Okay. Well, Louise, uh, we are accepting students for graduate study in my program, if you'd like to come and <laughs> yeah, write I was a whole like, dissertation about that. Is Louise just Professor Travis? <laughs> come on. <laughs> okay. So this is a big topic, a big issue in American history, and I want to make sure we don't miss anything. So I'm putting on my lecture hat so we can get the complete picture. Ready? Spoken like a true academic. So let's talk first about class and the assumption that self-help has ignored uh, working class people. I'm just going to say that empirically that's not the case. Self-help has targeted the middle class. It is a genre that came into being with the middle class, and it has always reached down to the working class to invite them into the middle class. The first self-help books of the early republic, so the early 1800s, were not exactly like the things that we're reading in this season. They were advice books, conduct manuals, guides to manners, guides to how to dress that were very didactic and how-to-ish compared to the stuff that we read this season, but that were always laced with exhortations that we would recognize, which is to say, you can be the person you want to be if you learn how to hold a knife and fork properly, if you learn how to tie your tie correctly, if you learn how to write a thank you letter correctly. So there's a, a level of didactic instruction in performing a middle-class identity that was explicitly aimed at the working class and the people who had recently moved from the countryside to the cities, which was beginning to happen at the beginning of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So there has always been an address to working class people, both to men and to women, to invite them to sort of move into the mainstream, undifferentiated middle class of the United States. So let's take the class piece out of the, uh, the argument for right now. We can come mm -hmm. back to that in just a second. But let's talk about race, which is historically a much more complicated issue uh, in the United States. So in the story that I just told about self-help aiming to lift people from the working class into the middle class, from the farm into the factory or the office, there's an assumption about the kind of self that you have. Mm. The American experiment is premised on the idea that ourselves are mutable and perfectible. This is a big rejection of European ways of understanding the self. Enslaved people and their descendants 
were not seen as having this self. Mm. In fact, they were barred from this vision of selfhood by being inscribed in the Constitution as less than fully human. Mm -hmm. That vision of African-descended Americans was inscribed at the level of law. It was articulated through popular science and religious practices that their selves were different from white American selves. And Native Mm -hmm. Americans were also seen as having inherently different selves than white Americans had. Mm -hmm. So since there is a strong belief within mainstream American culture that African American selves are different it's not surprising that they would be seen as not helpable by self-help. And they're shut out of the middle class for much Mm of the 19th and into the early 20th century. Because of this history of exclusion and not being written into the genre of self-help, also because of the fact that uh, literacy rates within the black community in the right. South were much lower because of literacy being illegal under, sa- under yeah. slavery. Yeah, I was going to say, like, also when you're not allowed to read and, right. like, that makes access hard to this kind of information. Uh, absolutely. And reading was a very important pathway into the middle class. Um, for working class and rural whites uh, and for new immigrants to the U.S. But within the black community, because of the legacy of enslavement, the idea of reading for self-improvement was not as widely shared a cultural value. You see it in many different places, including in the famous slave narratives of Frederick Douglass, but it was never a central piece of African-American culture in the way that mutual aid traditions were. Coming out of informal networks of kin and allies under slavery in the South, African-Americans formed benevolent societies and churches that were focused on economic survival, political survival, and the creation of emotional networks that helped resist uh, slavery and Jim Crow. Those benevolent societies, which were linked to church but not the same as church, spilled over into community associations, women's clubs, Masonic lodges, uh, and other uplift voluntary organizations that created a strong lived experience centered in face-to-face relationships and oral communication that has made African-American culture in many ways quite different from white Mm -hmm. middle-class American culture. And so self-help is developing through the late 19th and early 20th century as a print genre targeted to a white middle class. The emerging black middle class has its own ways of being and doing and is not big enough to seem like an attractive market to white publishers. Um, And so as self-help develops over the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, it just develops as a white thing because of the legacies of enslavement and Jim Crow and race inequality in this country. In the later part of the 20th century, um, self-help begins to develop a confessional dynamic. This is in part as a result of um, the influences of feminism, um, Mm -hmm. the victims' rights movement, and that includes confession to self about things like 
the existence of trauma as a result of domestic violence, sexual abuse, the presence of disordered eating, uh, substance use and abuse, a need to reckon with these things as a self and as part of a community. We know from the incredible work done by black women's historians that these things have all been part of the black community's experience mm -hmm. um, uh, over the course of the 20th century. These are widespread things that happen under capitalist patriarchy. They're not limited to any one racial group. There have been strong taboos against disclosure around those issues um, among African-American communities because of the need to preserve a united front in the face mm -hmm. of white oppression. Right. This has meant that another wave of self-help that came into the mass market during the 70s and 80s for women was addressed to white women who had the freedom to disclose around these issues who had the safe space in which they felt that they could share these things and begin to move through them and seek self-help and professional help for them. That's not a luxury that has been equally spread out over, uh, over the United States, and African-American and immigrant of color communities have struggled to deal with the fact that these issues exist and that trauma is a thing that we can name and move on from. Now we get back to Oprah, because she's yeah. the one, as we talked about in the last episode, that licenses the discussion of all of this in a way that had not been possible uh, for earlier generations of African-American men, but especially women. Yeah. Um, so Oprah sort of toggles a switch that allows a lot of things to happen that had not ha been possible for people of color prior to the 1980s. She does it through an incredible performance of her own personal strength, acknowledging the traumas uh, and the abuse that she's suffered, performing her own search for recovery and self-improvement on national TV and in her magazine and on her websites. And in doing that, she licensed a generation of women of color to make the same kind of claims, and behold, a market was born. Wow. Once that market is in place, then mainstream publishers all of a sudden are like, oh, let's get more of that. And the market for African-American self-help, which is an interesting hybrid of traditional white self-help narratives and trends, but combined with the kinds of mutual aid and spirituality and uplift that proliferated in, uh, in black voluntary associations in the 19th and early 20th century, all of that is starting to come to market now. And you're starting to see a much greater outpouring of black authored works for black audiences, Latina women coming to grips with a variety of traumas that they've had and a, a differentiated racially, but also all sort of like the same mainstream self-help. Now, question here, Professor Travis, you are talking about how, you know, self-help is becoming more integrated racially in recent years or decades, but it's still the case that it's very gendered. Mm -hmm. And Carrie asks, when did self-help books actually become gendered as female as opposed to personal development business books, which are gendered as male, at least in how they're publicized and marketed in bookstores? 
Hmm, that's an empirical question that I don't have data for right now. But off the top of my head, I'd actually say they've always been that way. Women have always made up the bulk of readers in the United States uh, trade publishing market. They are the largest consumers and buyers of fiction and the largest consumers and buyers of nonfiction. Self-help is one of the, if not the, largest category of nonfiction uh, being sold in America today. So hold on, it's just that women read more. <laughs> it's just that, it's true. It's just that women read more. And we're the best market to market to. <laughs> we are the best market to market because we buy more. Uh, mm. So I think that there may be a perception that because this series started with um, Dale Carnegie's book and included The Power of Positive Thinking, which is sort of a more gender neutral sort of book, that mm -hmm. there was a moment early in the century when self-help was a more masculine category. I don't think that that's empirically true um, because it, those two might be outliers in their address to uh, men in the same way that Mark Manson's Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is an outlier in today's self-help market. All right. We should ask you some questions that kind of bring self-help to the present. Yes. Aaron says, is the popularity of Marie Kondo kind of random or due to a recent shift in how we live our lives nowadays? Okay, it's not random. It's totally due to a way that we live today. We have more shit now than anyone's yeah. ever had in history, and we need somebody to tell us how to get rid of it. For thousands of years prior to right now, people's main problem was how to get enough shit now our problem is how to get rid of all the shit that we have. Uh, <laughs> so we have a moment where all of a sudden someone like Marie Kondo, who's good at paring down the shit we have, looks like a bright new fr fresh thinker uh, mm -hmm. solving a problem that we've never had up to this point in history. So it's no surprise that decluttering books are, uh, are big. We've never had this much clutter before. <laughs> so great. Very simple answer. All right. <laughs> Professor Travis. Next question from Joanne. Joanne asks, what is the future of self-help? What topics do you think the industry will tackle next? Well, this is a really good one that I, uh, I'm not in the industry and I don't think about the future. I think about the past. I'm a historian. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about this, though, since our last conversation about Brene Brown. And because one of the things that I'm seeing now that I would like to develop resistance to, that I'd like my students and my daughter to develop resistance to, is the felt need to commoditize yourself at mm -hmm. all times and in all yeah. ways. Yes. To be performing on social media, to be branding yourself, to make every interpersonal interaction into some sort of commercial transaction. Um, that is something that I see as a really debilitating dynamic that is operating in our society today. And I would like to see some concrete suggestions for how to mm -hmm. deal with it. If I were shopping for a self-help book today, I'd shop for that one. Um, and that means I'd like to see the self-help industry produce such a book. But it might not be in their interests to actually get people thinking like that. So I'm not really <laughs> sure if the, if the industry is going to trend that way. You guys have a much longer view than I do. What do you think is going to be? I do think that's an interesting view. What happens when we're all trying to operate as, like, autonomous brands, like, bumping up right. against each other? Yeah. I don't know 
how to codify resistance to that in a way that is realistic and meaningful for young people today. It's such an important part of how you get a job, of how you meet people, how you mate romantic partners. I don't know how you can have a self-help regime that counteracts it without just becoming like a curmudgeonly old fart like I am. Well, and I was thinking to me that also like an anecdote to that would be like maybe community building. I feel like there's a lot of isolation right now. And like Mm -hmm. before before the acknowledgement of like the isolation might be self-imposed and like part of a brand, maybe we just react to that first and are like, we feel really isolated. We're always on our screens. Like, where's community? And then once we start having community again, it's like, oh, wait, we all have trouble working together because we're all like brands that are fighting for attention. (laughs) Because I don't really like people. (laughs) Because I need to get people to like me so I can influence them. Um, (laughs) You've hit on a really real dynamic, and I don't know... I don't know what kind of self-help book could address that in a meaningful way beyond saying things like limit your screen time and put <laughs> affirmations on your phone and things like that. So I don't – I'm afraid that I don't have a good answer to that, and I wish I did because I would like to get help in that regard. Mm. Well, that's for your students to write or maybe your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not she a problem She just told today. me she wanted ear pods for her birthday. Uh-oh. Oh, yep. <laughs> so depressing. It was mm. awful. Well, I'm glad you're touching on personal stuff because we're going to take another quick break. But when we're back, we have some personal questions for you, Professor Travis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Okay. We are back with Professor Travis, and we have some lightning round questions just for fun to close out this episode. Oh, my gosh. I hate this part. Oh, this oh, is the part I was it. most excited for. <laughs> uh, question one. What would be your dream class to teach? I'm teaching it right now, actually. It's a freshman class called What is a Man? And it is a sort of introduction to thinking of gender as a social construction that is really stealth aimed at convincing uh, straight middle-class white men that they shouldn't be such dicks all the time. Oh, sounds good. Can we prescribe that class to the world? (laughs) They've got to be freshmen. If they're not freshmen, it's too late. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, you got to get them right in that sweet spot of like the world's their oyster and like they don't know everything all the way yet. (laughs) All right. Question two. What's the last vacation you went on and why do you choose to go there? 
The last vacation I went on was over Christmas. I went to Boston to see a friend of mine from college, and I go because on vacation, I go to see friends. I don't go to places to see places. I go to see people that I know that I don't get to connect to in my day-to-day work life. Wow. Nice. So you weren't going there for the Freedom Trail? No. No history. I wasn't. Just friends. The fact that there's a lot of good food there has something mm. to do with it. But You were like, uh, chowder, yes. Paul Revere's house, maybe another time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, next question. Question three. What were you like in high school? Well, I was awesome in high school. Yeah. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school, so oh my, my awesomeness was recognized by the people around me. Um, was it like fame? It, it was exactly like fame, and it was oh. the same time as the original fame movie. Nice. It was the late 70s and early 80s. So. I was pretty dorky at the beginning. Then I got to be really smart and really cool. And um, I was really great in high school, actually. What was your focus? I was in the theater department. I'm a terrible actress. Well, not a terrible actress, but not a very good actress. Uh, But I'm an excellent stage manager. Oh, yeah. I had the same issue. I also just love that you are probably the only person we've ever talked with on the show who right out of the gate is like, oh, I was the shit in high school. Yeah, no, Everybody no. else really <laughs> wants like, to. Everyone's like, oh, I was, I was such a misfit. Nobody liked me. I had to grow into myself. No, but and you're no. like, I was nailing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that I, I shouldn't give myself too much credit. It wasn't me. It was that my high school tolerated who I was. And I think that's what's unusual. It tolerated and respected um, a wide variety of different kinds of people. It was as queer-friendly as a space in the late 70s could be. It was as integrated racially as a place in the late 70s could be. And it just had a lot of amazing people running it and attending it. So it wasn't really me. It was just the surroundings that allowed me to be me. Wow. So cool. That's such a self-help answer, too. It's not just about the individual. (laughs) Yeah, I know. The whole, like, environment was really productive. (laughs) All right. Next question. Question four. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm too old to be either of those right now. (laughs) Uh, My perfect day involves me getting up at 7 or 8 and going to bed at 11 or 12. So I don't think I count as either morning or night. That sounds like a morning person to me. Yeah, same. I'm not going to wake up at 7 unless someone forces me to. Yeah, unless you have a thing. (laughs) All right, Professor Travis, last lightning round question. Question five, what's the last good book you read? Uh, The last great book I read was Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. That was an amazing redo on the immigrant narrative with an incredible voice, an amazing use of language, and an absolutely riveting story that I couldn't put down. Wow. Love it. And that is it for the questions for you today. So you are now, unfortunately, off the hook with By the Book. And we wish you could stay with us forever. We wish you could be in every episode for as long as we exist. <laughs> and just, like, teach us classes. Yeah. <laughs> but I just have to say that on behalf of Jolenta, our producer Nora, me, all of the listeners, you have been such a delight. Mm. You have brought so much to the show over the past totally. season. 
And we, it's like everything I've ever wanted to add to the show is just you. Yes. <laughs> we, we can't thank you enough. Seriously. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. It's been a huge pleasure for me to do this. I don't get to um, talk to people outside of the academic world very often. The university's not set up very well for that to happen. And so <laughs> it's a great opportunity um, to interact with people who are smart and curious and eager to learn. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it. And you've shown me a lot about the world of podcasting, which I'd heard a lot about but didn't know much about because I don't really Welcome. get out much. <laughs> well, you're a podcaster now, yeah. Professor Travis. <laughs> you're not just a professor anymore. One of the perks of podcasting doesn't take much out getting to make it. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. It does seem like that, which is a good thing. <laughs> well, thank you so much again. We really, Seriously, really appreciate thank you. you. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, bye-bye. And that's it for this bonus episode of By the Book. Of course, the biggest thank you of all the thank yous goes to Professor Trish Travis. Thank you so, so much for talking with us all season long. Thank you also to our fabulous production team at Stitcher, Nora Ritchie, who produced this episode, Andy Christens, who mixed this episode, and of course, big thanks to Daisy Rosario, our executive producer, and Chris Bannon, Stitcher's chief content officer. Nate Wyda composed our theme song. Gerald Arnold arranged this season's version of the theme song. And our own Nora Ritchie sang this season's version of the theme song. Huge thanks to all our music team. Please stay in touch, too. Tell us about your experiences living by self-help books. Are you a student of Professor Travis? What's it like being in her class? Reach out. Send us anything you want. Our email address is kristenandjalenta at gmail.com. Not to mention, you can also tweet at us, at Jalenta G, at Kristen Meinzer, or at By the Book Pod. You can also leave us a voicemail message. We love your beautiful voices. Call us at 302-49-BOOKS. That's 302-492-6657. And if you have a moment, you know you do. Please rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps other people find the show. And if you haven't already, tell a friend about the show. Tell a professor about the show. Tell somebody who loves Oprah about the show. And that means everybody. It's true. Until next time, I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Professor Trish Travis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. That's WW... Nope. That's www. No. How do you say W not? How do you I can say, say it, it again. normal? I'll just say it again. I can't say it anymore. Say it. They ruined me. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.